0: Scripture reading today is Luke 7, 36 through 39. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of your announcements uh, sheet is an outline that you can use as we go through this morning's message. And I'd like for you to keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 7. While you're doing that, uh, one of the, the marvels and the wonders of a technologically advanced age like this, is that you can kind of do things very quickly and on the fly. This morning, Alan Babcock, one of our shepherds, made an announcement about the opportunity for our church family to be generous and to give of our means to help folks that have been tragically struck by the floods and and the the over rains in Louisiana. Uh, One of the ways that you can also give, it's just been added to the church app, is to do so by going to your smartphone or your, your, your smart device, go to the church app, and then hit the um, uh, go to the the website to the give tab and then select disaster relief there in the app and that's another way that you can give also uh, before we uh, we get into the lesson i want to invite you again to be a part of a special uh, event that's going to be uh, happening here in in san antonio this afternoon that's connected to our church family many of you know uh, the allens uh, jennifer allen a long time, and her husband Herb and, and their son Sam and Charlie, long time members of our church family here. And and as many of you know, um, Jennifer has has been extremely, uh, has been an advocate and extremely active in the, uh, the Asperger autism community here in San Antonio and has just impacted so many people's lives as it seems like most of the time that I'm on the phone with her, and especially I think the last two times I've talked with her, she's been on her way with Sam to do some kind of a, a presentation with uh, troopers or with DPS or some, some government agency here close to San Antonio. And uh, her work has, has just touched so many people's lives. Uh, there are times when people call directly to the house and she talks to to moms and she talks to parents about, about this, this community in, in San Antonio. And she is a graduate of Abilene Christian University. Uh, many of you were a part of her class 1984. And ACU is recognizing her today with an alumni recognition that's going to be down at the San Antonio Area Foundation. It's 303 Pearl. It's down at the Pearl area, and that's going to be from 2 to 4 today. We would love for you to be there. Uh, I know that a lot of you have some things that are going on this afternoon. But we, I want to ask, Jennifer, where are you? Can we get you to stand, please? Where are you? Can we get you to stand? We're going to embarrass you. We want to recognize you right now as your church family. And as your church family, we want to say what you do is important, and it changes lives. And we're going to pray. Father, we're grateful that you have given us this day to come together and to be blessed by your presence and to bless each other with singing and with encouragement And Father, more than anything else, we want to draw closer to you and you to draw close to us and for us to know, to be keenly aware of your presence at all times. And now, Father, as as we come to bring all that we are, our entire life, to intersect your word, we're asking you to bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear in order for us to be transformed and to turn toward you. And we pray this in Christ's name and all the church said. One of the things that has always, always, always intrigued me about the Messiah, about Jesus, is just how magnetic magnetic he was with people. All kinds of, of people flocked to him. And in that ancient society, even the people that that ancient society considered to be persona non grata came to him and felt welcome in his presence. Persona non grata meaning a person that is unacceptable or a person that, that is not welcome. And it brings up, when you think about that, as you read through the Gospels, it brings up a question that I think that every church in every age in every culture has to, to wrestle with. And the question is this. Why do the people who need to run to Jesus seem to run away from His church? Why do the people who need to run to Jesus seemingly run away from His church? Now, I'm speaking with broad-stroke generalities, of course. But one of the things that the church needs to deal with and, and to answer and to wrestle with in, as it tries to be relevant with the gospel in every culture is why do the very people who seem to flock to the Christ in the gospels seem to, to flee from His representatives on earth? And that's what brings us to Luke chapter 7 this morning. And the story begins with Pharisees. There's this fellow by the name of Simon who is a Pharisee, and he's hosting a dinner in which Jesus is invited. Now, when you go to some of the ancient writings, Josephus, one of them, an ancient historian, says that there were four major philosophies of Judaism during the first century. There were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And Josephus himself kind of estimates that there's about 6,000 Pharisees in the land during the time of Jesus. Now, the Pharisees during the time of Jesus were devoutly religious people. They were, they were devoutly religious. They were respected people. A lot of them were rabbis. A lot of them were teachers of the law. And they were a group of people that really got the prophets when, when, uh, when you look at the way they practiced their Judaism in the first century. They understood that the reason that they had been carried off, Israel as a nation, had been carried off into captivity, is that. Israel had neglected Torah, that they had been disobedient to God, that they had not followed through in a faithful way, in an obedient way to God's will as His his representatives and His light in the world. And so all of those prophets had gone up into the northern ten tribes, but the tribes did not listen. They remained disobedient to God, and God sent the Assyrians who in 721 B.C. completely wasted that northern ten tribe area and carried those ten tribes into captivity. Nearly 150 years later, the same thing happened with the two remaining tribes in South Judah. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came, did the same thing, carried those two tribes into captivity. The only difference was that those two tribes were allowed to come back. During the time that uh, Cyrus the, the Great, a the Persian, became the, the, sort of the most powerful person on the planet from the Babylonians, he allowed the Jews to repopulate the land. And when they repopulated the land, they got the prophets. They understood that the reason they had lost the land, had gone into captivity, had lost all of that time was because they had been disobedient to Torah, that they had been disobedient to God. And so they became a people that were devoutly obsessed with the Old Testament. And the reason was they knew that God had promised them that if they, as his people, did as he commanded, that they were faithful and that they trusted him, he would bless them. That was one of the promises that they were banking on. Now, the Pharisees, and the name Pharisee itself, kind of gives you a hint as to how they practiced this. The word means to be separated, they separated themselves. And they did this a lot of different ways, but there were two ways in particular that I think pertain to the story. The first is they obsessed over the law. And number two, they avoided the very people that broke the law in their eyes. And one of the ways they did this was in the practice of table fellowship. It was called haverot during the first century. And basically what it meant is you would never sit down and enjoy a meal or share a meal with somebody who did not have your worldview that did not understand God the way that you understood God, or practiced Judaism the way that you practiced Judaism. And so they were very select, and they were very strict, and they were very obsessed with keeping the law. And that very thing brought into their lives a couple of temptations. The first temptation was that they would make the rules more important than relationships. They would make the rules more important than relationships. How many of you here like to play games, dominoes, board games like Monopoly, card games, hearts, spades? Have you ever played with a group of friends a board game? And I I love this picture. Remember the good old days when people put on a tie to play cards? (laughs) Yeah, that's an amazing picture to me. And they're having so much fun with ties. Everyone is having fun. And then all of a sudden, there's this one person there playing the game that kind of makes up something. They become sort of obsessed with some kind of a real, real or make-believe, and they kind of ruin the game for everybody. I remember one time I was in junior high, and we were playing uh, Monopoly or Life, one of those two games. Had some friends over to the house, and I, it was actually Monopoly because I had rolled the die, got the number I needed, which was a double six 12, and I landed on Boardwalk, which is a piece of property I wanted. Well, the guy I was playing with did not want me to get that, and so he came up with this rule that somehow my roll of the dice was invalid, that I cheated. Cheated rolling the die? What are you talking about? He said, I saw one die come out and tumble. The other slid. You cheated. Roll again. And because I'm not, you know, I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover, I went ahead and rolled. But it always stuck with me that here we are playing the game. Nobody dies. But there's got to be this one guy that plays as if everything in life is attached to it. Sort of the way that the Pharisees were with the rules. You can see this with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the fourth commandment. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. And the reason you rest is because God rested. And you consider consider creation. You consider the greatness of God. The Sabbath was about building faith. But the Pharisees, knowing that this was a problem with with everything that had happened, you know, 500, 600 years prior, they had decided that it wasn't good enough to just let that fourth commandment stand on its own. So in what became Talmud, I have a copy of it in my own office, they have an entire book that is dedicated to the Sabbath. And inside of that book you find 39 chapters. Inside of the 39 chapters are all the ways that you can or cannot work on the Sabbath and stay within the bounds of that fourth commandment. This is one of the reasons why the Pharisees were always upset with Jesus, because in their mind, Jesus never broke the Sabbath as it was commanded by God in Exodus, but He broke it all the time in the way that they interpreted it. Their obsession with the rules kept them from seeing God. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus says to these religious leaders, He says, you know, you search the Scriptures diligently because you think that life is in them when those are the Scriptures that point to me in order for you to have life in me. And what happened is they became so obsessed, hyper-obsessed with the law, that they failed to see God Himself when He was among them. Which also leads to a second temptation, and that was the reality of self-righteousness. Have you ever been around somebody that you're sort of uncomfortable with because you always thought that they were not looking for friendship, but they were sort of looking for some mistake that you might make? Here's a reference to the older folk, the middle-aged folk from popular uh, culture. Remember, who is this up here on the screen? It's, it's Frank Burns and Hot Lips Houlihan, right? From the TV show MASH. Remember what, what the persona of Frank Burns and Houlihan all about? Rules. And the way that they would use the rules was to try to use it in a way that they could gauge themselves and usually to gauge themselves as being better than everybody else. There's just something about keeping the rules in the wrong way that becomes a gauge and it becomes a comparison tool with other human beings. And when we begin to use rules like that it makes us judgmental, it makes us aloof and it can make us cold to other people. And the worst news of all is that we're lost. In Luke chapter 18, there's this story that Jesus tells about a publican, a, a tax collector, and a Pharisee. And here's this Pharisee that gets up and he says, God, aren't you glad that I'm not like this fellow over here, the number of times I fast and what I give and all of these kinds of things? And aren't you glad that I'm not like this tax collector over here? And the tax collector Can't even look at heaven. He tears his clothing. He says, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, it was the tax collector that was found righteous. Simon the Pharisee is hosting this dinner. A bunch of other Pharisees there at the, the dinner table when all of a sudden the party is crashed by a sinful woman. Now, it's not known for sure, but most of the scholars and and the language of of Luke here seems to imply that this woman was a prostitute. And Luke says everybody in the room knew it. It was known that she was a sinner, a person that lived a sinful life. And she comes into the room, and she stands behind Jesus. And the picture here is not like, you know, she walked into Taco Cabana where you've got tables and, and chairs... It's a triclinium. It's, it's a three-sided, U-shaped table, very low to the ground, surrounded by pillows and mattresses. And what you would do is you would either cross-legged sit at the table, or most likely you would lean on your elbow and eat with your right hand. Not necessarily a, a way that I would dig to have dinner, because I like both hands free. But this is the way they did it in the Middle East. And Jesus' feet are out there behind him. And this woman comes in, and just imagine, here's this woman, probably a prostitute, knowing that she's walking into a Pharisee dinner, Pharisee house, all of the obstacles, all of the things that she had to overcome emotionally to come and to stand at Jesus' feet. And the place goes quiet. The place goes quiet. And a tear begins to come down her cheek. And all of those Pharisees that had been reaching into their pocket to get a rock to throw at her, they don't do anything. It's kind of hard to throw a rock at a woman who's crying, right? And her tears become so profuse that they begin to land on Jesus' feet, and she lets down her hair, which causes a gasp in the room, because there's, in the Middle East, there's only one reason that a woman would put her hair down. And she gets down on her knees, and she begins, where her tears have hit his feet, she begins to wipe the crud and the dirt off of Jesus' feet. And not only that, she takes this this perfume, which, you know, back in the day, first century, they didn't have 401Ks, Roth IRAs. What they had were, for most people, what they had were commodities that they could sell. She probably has this perfume as as a part of her retirement plan. And what she does is she takes her retirement plan, she takes her 401k as perfume, and she begins to pour it over the feet of Jesus and to anoint him. There is um, a question that I think needs to be asked. If we were there, sitting in that room, what would we see? What would we see? Now, I would like to think that if I was in that room, that what I would see would be the spectacular display of worship. I mean, there's a backstory here, right, that we don't know anything about. Here is this, this woman that Jesus has met, and somehow, in the exchange of words or their interaction of words, Jesus has altered her life in only a way that love can when you're seeing that you're made in the image of God, and in her interchange with Jesus, he has not objectified her, he has not commodified her, he has seen her as a daughter of God, at least. There's a movie that came out uh, this year called Elvis and Nixon. And believe it or not, this picture that was taken in the early 70s in the White House is the most requested picture out of the White House archives. And in this particular movie, it's all about the idea that Elvis has that he needs to meet with Nixon and talking to him about talk to him about the future of the United States and youth and all these kinds of things and in 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 this particular movie, there's a scene that's very poignant. Uh, Elvis is in the hotel with two of his really, really good friends, and his friend, his best friend in the entire world, walks up to the bathroom where Elvis is in it, and he's watching Elvis as he's, he's putting on all of the makeup and the sunglasses and getting the hair all Elvis-fied and, and all of that. And Elvis notices him and starts to laugh and, and turns this gigantic suitcase over toward him where he can see all of the Noxeme and the lotions and the hairspray and the combs and the hair dryers and all of these things that Elvis has to travel with so that he can be Elvis. And he kind of starts making fun of it and he says, you know, all of this stuff and all these lotions, can you believe this? It's all because, you know, this Elvis. And then he turns to his friend and he says, One of the reasons why I've always loved you and why we're such great friends is because you see me. You don't see the thing, you see me. I think that that's in part the backstory. It that so somehow Jesus has treated this woman that nobody else has treated like a human being. He's treated her like a human being and a daughter of God. And she's come to worship Him and to honor Him and to thank Him. Well, there's another couple of people in this story. Simon is one of them. And what Simon sees is a debacle. What Simon sees is a debacle and he's disappointed that Jesus would allow somebody like this woman that everybody everybody in the world knows is a sinner he has allowed her to touch him if he really were a prophet If if he was something special he would never have allowed her to touch him because he would have known what kind of woman she is. And because Jesus is able to know the hearts of men he says Simon I want to say something to you. Simon says say it. He says, there's this moneylender. He's got two people that owe him money. One owes him 500 denarii. The other owes him 50 denarii. And one day, the money lender decides that I'm going to do something really generous and gracious, and I'm going to forgive the debt to both of these, the 500 and the 50. Now, Simon, I have a simple question for you. Who loves that moneylender the most? Simon thinks about it and he goes man that's a really easy question it's the one who was forgiven the most and then Jesus says something to Simon that is incredibly profound and we just run right over it every time we read this story he says do you see this woman do you see this woman why does Jesus ask that question It's because Simon had never seen her before, even though he had seen her probably every day. He wants to open Simon's eye to the reality that this is a human being that needs God. He he wants Simon to see that this is somebody's daughter. He wants Simon to see that this is somebody's sister, that this is a woman who never grew up wishing one time as she was growing up, I really want to be a prostitute. This is a woman that had become objectified and commodified in a scramble to support herself. And again, I don't know what the backstory is, but Jesus sees the woman and not the thing, the known sinner. And, and somewhere in the backstory, she encountered grace. Two realities as we close. And struggle with this passage. The first is this, our church must be welcoming and gracious. Our church is welcoming, but we, we can't be just welcoming. We have to learn how to be gracious in our welcoming. There's a, a story that, that Philip Yancey has told um, and has written down in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and it's a story about a, a woman who lived in Traverse, Michigan, And as a young teenager, she was really rebellious, decided she wanted to live outside of the rules that her parents tried to give her in life. And so one day, she snuck out of the house and took a bus to Detroit, Michigan. And you know as well as I do that at bus stations all over the world, there are men that are looking for single girls getting off of a bus who look lost, who are going to drag them into a world of prostitution by first being nice to them, and, and, and being generous with them, and then will use them for everything they can get out of them. And there comes a point in this young woman's life where all of that has happened, and the signs of a disease begin to show up in her body. And when her boss finds out about that, he kicks her to the street and says he has no more use for her. And one night in the rain next to a dump, dumpster, the most outrageous idea in the world comes to her, and that is maybe, just maybe, I can return home. I'll pick up reading where Yancey takes this story. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message. The first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. It'll be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City and during that time she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home and they probably wrote her off as dead long ago, she should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech. and the speech she was... the speech she was preparing for her father. She wants to say, Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening, even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed, worn by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road, and the bus swerves every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God, she, she thinks. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, Fifteen minutes, folks, that's all we have here. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth, She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great-aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer gen- generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm, I'm sorry, but I know, and he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that, no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. I I think that our assembly should be like a party that people want to crash. What we do in worship has to be so compelling. There's that passage in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14. Where Paul is writing to that church and talks about the greatness of the worship of God when it's in spirit and in truth and it's dynamic. And he says, there are those people that come into your assemblies who have yet to understand God or to give their life to the Messiah who fall down on their knees and proclaim that God is among these people. What we do in worship has to be so compelling because the presence of God and our love of the Messiah, and His Spirit in us, and our understanding of the Gospel, that these walls that are around us become invisible. That people come to this place because this is where they encounter God. And friends, if you're uncomfortable with certain kinds of humans coming into our assemblies, then you might be a Pharisee. And if you might be a Pharisee, then you need to repent. The second thing is this, our church must see the human need for God's grace. In every person that we see, we see the possibility of the work of God coming to fruition through the gospel, through the spirit, through the word in such a way that that person is transformed. I ran across across this, this quote and I was surprised it came from Oscar Wilde who was a wild man himself. But Oscar Wilde said something that I thought so absolutely true. He said, every saint has a past And every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past. And every sinner has a future. The last thing I want to say is that there is so much that we can do. There is so much we can do. You know, you you don't need to be a Christian to build a house or to feed the hungry or to heal the sick. But there is only one thing that the world cannot do and only the church does it and that is to offer grace through the gospel to our community. David's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there are some ways that we can minister to you. There are some shepherds going to be down here at the front, and at this time, while we're singing and praising God, if there's something on your heart that needs to be, that needs to be counseled or prayed over, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Creating me a clean heart. Oh.